Welcome to Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. I am at the Skirball Cultural Center on the west side. Having worked my way through crowds of children headed to the Noah's Ark playroom, I arrived at the wide-open taper courtyard with its accompanying reflective pool. It's easy to escape the city in a winding and remote structure like the Skirball, with all its terraces, theaters, and ongoing activities. Socalo returned to the Skirball Cultural Center with critically acclaimed author Francisco Goldman. In his public square lecture, he discusses his first nonfiction work, The Art of Political Murder, Who Killed the Bishop? Goldman's book is the culmination of nine years of research into the death of Guatemalan bishop Juan Gerardo Conodera, a staunch human rights activist. Navigating between stories of killer dogs, mystery cars, and a motley crew of unlikely detectives, Goldman sketches out the improbable case from top to bottom. Here is Francisco Goldman. I'm going to uh, talk tonight about my book, The Art of Political Murder, Who Killed the Bishop? It's a narrative chronicle of a murder investigation into the death of Bishop Juan Herardi in Guatemala City in 1998, a case that's actually still an ongoing case. I'll tell you how it started. Well, I have to go all the way back to the beginning. I hadn't even really graduated from college yet in 1979. I mean, I never went back to college, but uh, it's when I started covering Central America as a freelance journalist, usually you know, working for various magazines and living as cheaply as I could, often sometimes in a house that had belonged to my late grandmother in Guatemala City, eventually in little rented places. And I'd use Guatemala City as my base and go out to the other countries in Central America during those years. And sometimes I'd go back to New York. And pretty much for the next 12 years, my life was really divided between those two places. And uh, so I started off, basically covered that war from the Sandinista Revolution, the period of incredible urban repression in Guatemala City in the, in the late 70s and 80s, early 80s, all the way to the Panama invasion, I guess in about 91. And all the time, working on my fiction. And so, by the time the 90s began, I felt I really needed a break from, although it had meant everything to me, and it had been the most, you know, it was really my true university in every way, those years of growing up and finding my own voice and working in that atmosphere, in those countries. I felt a little burnt out by it all, and just wanted to concentrate on my fiction, and began to sort of distance myself from Central America and Central American politics. A lot of my closest friends, they still are journalists from that time. They went on to the next war, you know, whether it was Chiapas or Bosnia and all the way up to Iraq and Afghanistan today. And um, I didn't really want to do much of that anymore, but it was 1998, and when Bishop Harardi, the great human rights leader of the Catholic Church, was murdered in Guatemala in April, I was aware of it. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is the same old thing. You know, obviously, he tried to tell the truth, and they murdered him for it. And the months went by, and it was three months later, four months later, July. And I happened to be visiting my very closest friend, John Lee Anderson, the, who covers Iraq for The New Yorker. You've probably read his stuff in Spain. And we were there one day, and I was reading El País, the Spanish newspaper, which is like the paper of record in Spain. And there's this story that this eminent Spanish forensic anthropologist in Madrid studying forensic photographs of Bishop Harardi's skull discovered signs of dog bites. And that on the basis of this, on July 17th, in a commando operation of 150 heavily armed like SWAT team type special forces soldiers, they'd surrounded a San Sebastian church parish where the murder had occurred and arrested his co-parish priest, this pudgy 34-year-old young priest in designer clothes, and had taken his German shepherd dog into custody as material evidence, his German shepherd dog, Baloo. And I read this in the paper, and honestly, I thought, that's just amazing, because my first reaction, I, I believed it. And I said, what an extraordinary turn of events. <laughs> Whoever would have thought Apparently, it was a crime of passion of some kind, some sort of lurid melodrama. And I said, well, this isn't the same old story. I'd really like to go write about this. I have to admit, I had almost cynical glee, right? 
And he says, well, why don't you ask the New Yorker if they're interested in doing it? And so I fried it off a fax die. Bill Buford was the fiction editor, and he's a very cynical person, so he loved it. And, <laughs> and I got the assignment on what they call spec, because I hadn't written for them before. And they said, we'll give you a shot at it, but you have to pay your own way. And if we like it and decide to go forward with it, we'll reimburse your expenses and pay you for the piece. So I flew to Guatemala City. I stayed at this horrible little pension down the center that cost like $3 a night. And I'll never forget, it. you know, that first night I wanted to be at the church at the hour that the murder occurred. And so I took a taxi to the church, and the church is in actually the very neighborhood that my grandparents and my mother grew up in. Uh, San Sebastian was actually my, my mother's parish church when she was a girl. I was actually baptized there. It's in a very genteel old, crumbling, kind of middle-class neighborhood of old Spanish colonial homes and now office buildings in, in the center of Guatemala City, but only blocks from the real center of power in Guatemala, the presidential palace and the military installations right behind it. The church has a park out in front that at night is very dark. The whole neighborhood shuts down at night. I remember standing there and seeing a figure frozen, in the, it was kind of misty, frozen in front of the church, and he seemed to be staring at me, wondering what I was doing, and I was afraid. I, I started into the park and then got scared and retreated. And finally, I just made myself go in, because he came walking down towards me, and he was this policeman in a bulletproof vest. And the, you know, the fear was just really thick around there. And then it was extraordinary, because lying in front of the garage door, Bishop Hardy was murdered in his garage, were about eight vagrants. It's a very important part of this murder, the role of the homeless vagrants in Guatemala, colloquially referred to as bolitos, little drunks, who every night used to sleep in front of the parish house garage door. And there they were, you know, in their tattered rags and their cardboard beds. And it was so strange, because I got up there, they sort of woke up like a row of dominoes. One woke up, and the other woke up, and they started going, nosotros, nosotros no vimos nada. You know, we didn't see anything. We saw nothing, no nothing. And I was like, referring to the night of the murder, you know, and one little guy like rolled his fist like that and said, if I'd been here, I would have saved the bishop. And the police were just sort of staring at them. The next day, I met with a friend, an acquaintance at that point, in a restaurant downtown who he was connected to the ODA. When I say ODA, I mean the Church Office of Human Rights that Bishop Hardy had directed. And we had lunch, and he goes to me, that stuff about the dog bites, that's not true. <laughs> he says, because I still believed it, you know? And he said, uh, no, at the church, they're following some leads. And he told me about the first little bits of evidence that they had. And I remember as I listened to him, almost like my whole metabolism changing, as I realized, oh my God, it is the same old story. <laughs> but at a level of weirdness and strangeness and sophistication that I'd never before imagined. I'll never forget that day because I went walking out into Guatemala City and frankly this place where I'd lived very intense times in the mid-80s and had hoped never to experience those feelings again. And as I remember, I wanted to walk to the cathedral. As I walked to the cathedral, it was like deja vu, stepping back in time. There's all that sense of fear and paranoia and uh-oh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> and that feeling of unpunished death that in those years was always around you in the 80s in Guatemala, com almost coming up this, from the sidewalk. It was like stepping back into a frame of mind, you know, that I thought I'd left way behind. And that was really the beginning of a, what turned into be a nine-year involvement in following this one case. Bishop Harardi, Bishop Juan Harardi, for those of you who don't know, was the founder and director of the Guatemalan Archdiocese Office of Human Rights. It's important to know his history. In the seven, late 70s, up to the year of 1980, he was Bishop of Quiche. The Department of Quiche in Guatemala is probably the most heavily Mayan Indian department of the country. And at that time, it was a moment in Guatemala's very long 36-year civil war where the atrocities, particularly army atrocities, in the name of fighting the guerrillas, were beginning to really mount as they began a campaign of torture and abductions and assassinations of local community activists, especially church activists, nuns and priests, as well as what would soon become an ever-mountain for the next few years, campaign of massacres against the highland, mainly Mayan-populated villages of the highlands. 
By the end of the 80s, just that department of Quiche would be the province or diocese, I guess, that saw more priests and nuns martyred than any other in Latin America. Bishop Hardy himself barely escaped an assassination attempt. He was up in a village doing some kind of business, and local villagers saw it. There was an ambush being prepared for him outside the town, and they led him around another way so he could escape. Fear began to eat at him. Fear for himself and fear for other priests and nuns and catechists. And he made a decision that really altered his life. He decided to close the dioceses and pull out all his nuns and priests, both to save their lives and to draw attention, the world's attention, to what was happening there. He traveled with then-bishop, future archbishop, Prospero Penados, to the Vatican to meet with Pope John Paul II. They had first met as young bishops at a synod in Krakow and really hit it off. They were both kind of earthy, very masculine. You know, for a bishop, you would say like a really regular guy, you know. And, and they had a friendship, kind of. And Pope John Paul never stopped caring about Bishop Harari or his case. And he said to him, you know, he wrote an extraordinary pastoral letter in response to the death of church people in Kiche. But he said to him, that was wrong. You should not have closed the diocese. Go back and reopen it. It was a mistake to leave these people without the care and guidance and protection of the church at such a bad time. And so Bishop Hardy obeyed, and he got on a plane, and he flew back to Guatemala City, and at the airport, he was met by a military contingent. And that military contingent was probably going to take him away and kill him, but there also was a contingent of bishops there. Because the bishops were there, they felt they couldn't get away with it, and instead they put him on a plane to Salvador. And he got on the plane to Salvador, but since El Salvador at this time had a Notre Dame-educated, very Catholic president, Napoleon Duarte, who found out that there was a death squad waiting to kill Gerardi in Salvador, and he phoned him up or sent a message that says, do not get off that plane, whatever you do. And he flew on to Costa Rica, and he spent almost four incredibly anguished years there being out of the fray, out of everything, while the campaign of massacres and the war is mounting in Guatemala. He's left the people of, of his parish sort of without protection. I mean, eventually the church, without him, you know, a new bishop brought them back, but his frustration was incredible. You're listening to author Francisco Goldman. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. It's that time of year for Discover Magazine's top science stories of the year, 100 of them. And Michael Shermer joins us on the next edition of Air Talk to discuss those top science stories, the biggest breakthroughs, as well as areas for concern. Please join us. It's Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. There's a movie for every occasion, film suited to Mother's Day and Labor Day, graduation days and snow days and getting a pet and road trips and jury duty and coming out, and now there's a book that tells you all about them. And two San Diego physicists may have solved a problem of the ages. How do those strings of Christmas tree lights always get tangled, no matter how carefully you pack them away? They call it spontaneous knotting of an agitated string. You may call it something we can't say on the radio. It's here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to author Francisco Goldman, speaking on his book, The Art of Political Murder, Who Killed the Bishop? Guatemala's cardinal at the time, Mario Casariegos, was the classic right-wing, anti-communist, pro-army, pro-oligarchy, uh, Roman Catholic Church leader who never spoke out against the murder of his priests and nuns, assumed if they were being killed, there must have been a good reason for it. 
used to bless army tanks with holy water. He used to drive around in a big limousine. He died. Because the Guatemalan dictator at the time, the man who was really the biggest killer of all Guatemala's dictators, and that's really saying something, uh, Efren Rios Montt was an evangelical Protestant, he had openly taunted the Pope in many, many ways. And so relations between the military and the church were very strained. And um, when Casillegos died, Prospero Penales was named Archbishop. And the army, as a gesture of goodwill, even though in their private communications, they were really saying, I can't believe we're letting this son of a bitch back into the country, allowed Bishop Harari to come back. He got appointed, among other things, head of the Archbishop's Office of Human Rights, which was the first human rights group in the country during this terrible, terrible time that could actually operate on a national level. Right? Every other human rights group that had started to form up, they'd all been like massacred and wiped out and killed. But you know, this was the church, and they had their parishes, and they had their nuns and activists all over the country, and uh, it was an organization that could have a certain effect. The peace negotiations happened. We get into the 90s, right? They start in 94. In 96, a peace is signed, ending 36 years of war, a war that saw 200,000 civilians murdered, a majority of them in the 80s. The army were the clear victors. The only reason they go to the peace accords is because the country, because of their horrendous human rights record, is an international pariah state, and they need to rejoin the world community. So the army agrees to these negotiations. But as victors, they're dictating the terms. And so among the things they say there's a condition for peace is that there must be a blanket amnesty, so-called piñata of self-forgiveness, for all human rights crimes that were committed during the war years. You know, in a country where, for all those deaths, not a single military officer had ever been convicted of a human rights-related crime, they do agree that there can be a UN-sponsored truth commission. But the UN-sponsored truth commission, although it can look into the past, is not going to be allowed to name the names of military units, name officers, assign blame, etc. And he also knows that it's going to be staffed by really a bunch of young, blonde-haired Americans and Europeans. And he said they're going to go up into those villages. You know, the Mayans are not a monolithic people. It's 16 different language groups. Those villages can feel terribly isolated. If a massacre occurred in one village, they don't necessarily know they occurred in lots of other villages. They don't know why. There's confusion, there's fear, there's incredible taboos against speaking out to strangers. It's the terror of strangers. He said, they're never going to get the people up there to tell them what happened. So he says, the church is going to do its own truth commission because we can operate nationally. And because we have such a presence in the communities, people will trust us and they'll speak to us. So he trained 700 people, often people from communities, church catechists, teachers, humble people, to go out with tape recorders into the villages and break this taboo of silence. The result... On April 24, 1998, a bomba that the army never expected to have to deal with. A four-volume human rights report, this fat, this thick, where the church managed to document out of the 650 massacres of villages we know occurred, they managed to document 440 of them. Of the 200,000 dead, they managed to put down by name, the last volume is just names, more than 50,000. They analyzed the structure of how military intelligence so runs the death squads work, and just... Incredible. They named names, they named military units, and Bishop Harardi let it be known that if the amnesty was ever breached, he would make this documentation available to prosecutors and families who wanted to pursue justice. This is something the Army never expected to have to put up with. Right? And listen to this. I mean, in a country that had only known silence, like Bishop Harardi said, and he told the people working on the report, because it's almost like a work of literature, he said he wanted a report that would enter readers through their pores and move them. He didn't want just a dry report. So the report was hundreds and hundreds of pages of direct testimony like this. I'll just read a little bit of it, but imagine hundreds of pages of this. The senora was pregnant. With a knife, they cut open her belly to pull out her little baby boy, and they killed them both. And the muchachitas playing in the trees near the house, they cut off their little heads with machetes. Case 0976, Santa Maria Sheha, Quiche, 1980. They killed them with machetes. They killed them by strangling and with bullets. They picked up the children by their legs and smashed them against a tree. And the tree they smashed the children against, that tree died. Because of so many children smashed against that tree so many times, 
Well, the tree died. Case 336, Rio Negro, Rabinal, Verapaz, 1982. On the 19th of March, 1981, the army came to the village of Shell and took from the church the 95 people praying there. And they took them down to the river at the edge of the village, and there they massacred them with knives and bullets. The rest of the people were frightened, and they fled into the mountains, where they were pursued by helicopters. The responsible ones were the army and the civil patrols. Case 4761, Shell Shahul Kiche. On and on like that. Every taboo smashed and broken. Two days after the release of the report, Bishop Hardy is murdered. Now, the big question, and the first question that everyone asks, if the army didn't in fact kill him, why would they do it two days after the report was released? Why wouldn't they do it before? And that's when you begin to understand and answering that question why this book is called The Art of Political Murder and why this case is the very particular kind of case it is and became. Because when Virginia Woolf writes that to become a fiction writer in free imagination, you need a room of one's own, the equivalent of a room of one's own to state-sponsored murderers is the institution of impunity. If you really think that no matter what crime it is that you carry out, there's no way you're ever going to face justice for it, and after all, nobody ever had, why should you be afraid? It frees your imagination. You can stream up a crime much more sophisticated than simply whacking this guy before his report's going to come out. Because if you kill him before the report comes out, you're only going to give legitimacy to the report. He's going to die. The report's still going to be published. You're never going to stop the report from being published. And he's going to be a martyr, and the report is going to be read with utmost seriousness. And so the people who planned this crime perhaps thought, what if we can do much more with a murder? What if we can dream up a murder that's a pure piece of theater? And the kind of piece of theater that will not only get rid of our enemy, Bishop Hardy, and strike fear to the whole human rights community, but will create such a scandal, such a sensation, such an ongoing real-life telenovela that won't stop that we will discredit the bishop, we'll discredit the report, we'll cover this whole crime in layers and layers of scandal. The more the church fights against it, because they have their own vulnerabilities, the more they're going to entangle themselves and entrap themselves in scandal, and we'll sow confusion everywhere, which is effectively what happened. Picture the night of the murder. Bishop Hardy, on Sunday nights, always used to go and have dinner with his elderly sister and his cousins. They knew his movements. They knew he did this every single Sunday night without fail. Driving home, he'd arrive around 10. You know, he'd drive up that long drive towards the door of the church. In the garage, he would have to stop his car and get out. The garage door had a little door inside it, and he'd have to get out and go through the little door. Then from the inside, slide open this very cumbersome, big, kind of accordion-like metal door, come back out, get in his car, drive his car back in, get out, shut the door. That's what's supposed to apparently happen that night. But theater, these are things we know. A couple hours before that, somebody had turned up in the park, bearing a gift to the vagrants that slept out front, uncapped liter bottles of beer, craft cheese sandwiches, not the usual thing, one of them later told investigators. We know they were drugged. It knocked most of the vagrants out. It doesn't mean they didn't see things. Later, they did, but they were, most of them were too afraid to talk at the time. But a lot of them were knocked out when the whole thing happened. There were one or two vagrants knew they weren't supposed to touch it. They were there for a reason. 10.05, the little door in the garage opens. A muscular man wearing no shirt steps out, allows himself to be seen. Inside, he's left a sweater on the floor by the bishop's body. He goes walking out of the park. When the body is finally discovered by the co-parish priest, a storm of people arrive. The police at first only put the security line tape just up around the body. I mean, not only should the whole parish house have been sealed off, the whole park should have been sealed off, right? But instead, people just coming from everywhere, arriving, stepping over the pools of blood, destroying all the evidence, tracking blood everywhere. They basically left behind a useless crime scene. At five in the morning, the co-parish priest, Mario Orantes, claiming that he received orders from someone in the public ministry, which he may have, mops up the evidence, starts mopping up the floor, mopping up all the blood. The UN investigators are startled to hear one of the female vagrants sitting there starting to chant, Fueron huecos, fueron huecos. They were fags, they were fags. Because they knew which prosecution team this would fall for. They chose the date, because it's not, you know, they're, they're 
decent prosecutors, and there are prosecutors who are in their pocket. And so you knew if we do this this Sunday night, this case will fall to prosecution team six. So a prosecutor from prosecution team six comes into the autopsy room and says, anal swab to check for signs of homosexual penetration. Orders from above. The next morning at a cabinet meeting, the highest ranking general in the army tells the president and his ministers, I know the country is in shock. This is very delicate information. But um, we have information that esto fue un lío entre homosexuales. There was like a homosexual squabble that led to this murder. This starts filtering out into rumors, into the press. The theater is going. This whole thing has been armed and is moving forward, and it's going to result three months later in the arrest of this priest who was going to be solely accused of being Bishop Harardi's murderer and sicking his German shepherd on the bishop in apparently a domestic crime of passion of some kind. <laughs> now, if you're the young people in the church who work for Bishop Harardi at the Church Office of Human Rights, how are you going to fight against this? You're looking at a whole country that's rigged up to aid the murderers. There's no police. In the nine years of covering the Bishop Hardy case, the police never contributed one thing, never investigated one thing, never brought in one witness, never did anything. The media is rigged up to help this along. Corrupt judges planted at every point of the way. How are you going to fight against this? It looks hopeless, right? But that night, as they sat in front in the church, the young guys from the Church Human Rights Office Uh, There was a woman there named Helen Mack, who some of you might have heard of. Her sister, Myrna Mack, an anthropologist who covered internal refugees, which was controversial because the army denied there were internal refugees, people hiding in the mountains. She'd been murdered in a crime like this, a faked crime of passion on the streets of downtown Guatemala City. A man had come and stabbed her 27 times. They never thought that her sister, Helen, Opus Dei, Catholic girl, ultra-right-wing real estate agent, they never imagined she was going to become the most tenacious, ferocious human rights activist the country had ever seen. So Helen's there, and she says, why don't you guys form your own team to investigate the murder? At the very least, maybe you'll gather enough information to be able to block whatever false scenario they're going to try and push forward. Because after all, it's the church. A lot of information comes to the church. And so they said, well, who? And they hit on this guy named Fernando Penados, the archbishop's 28-year-old nephew. Now, Fernando, when he was 19, you know, his family wanted him to be a priest. He was the oldest son. And he was very wild. And they thought, well, he's certainly not going to be a priest unless we do something. And so they sent him to live in the archbishop's palace and to share a room with a seminarian. And as Fernando later put it himself, I never very well understood the process in which I was immersed. But the seminarian ended up leaving the seminary. <laughs> <laughs> Fernando was like bringing girls into his room, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, it was. So they said, "Well, no, Fernando is never going to be a priest." And so they said, "Well, let's give him to Bishop Harardi, and maybe he can do some work with the Church Human Rights Office." Working in human rights for Bishop Harardi was probably the best education you could have in a police investigation in Guatemala. They were the only people investigating crimes. Police weren't, and he fell in love with this. And it was an era in which, you know, he got to take a course in police work. The U.S. Embassy sponsored with the FBI, and the French Embassy offered one to the Surete, and the Spanish Embassy with the Spanish Civil Guard. So he ended up really becoming, so he ended up really becoming a legitimate investigator. He ended up working as an investigator for the public ministry, which is like the Attorney General's District Attorney's Office. He was teaching a course in human rights at the police academy while he was continuing his university studies. They said, Fernando will lead this team. He picks three other young guys. His friend Arturo at the time was just working at a gas plant in Quetzaltenango. 19-year-old Arturo Aguilar, who was a law student still living at home with his parents, but was doing volunteer work at the Oda, a big, burly, slacker guy who loves Bukowski and independent rock and stuff like that. And then one day, when Fernando had to go to the morgue, he knew it was going to really smell bad, and he realized he was out of cigarettes. And he saw this very tall, lanky, handsome guy smoking in the Oda courtyard. This guy had long black hair, so eventually his nickname was El Shakira. Uh, he says, hey, do you want to join my team? And he goes, all right, <laughs> we'll get in the Jeep so he could have a cigarette. He have cigarettes at the morgue. These guys ended up calling themselves Los Intocables, the Untouchables, 
And believe it or not, in this incredibly long nine-year case, especially in the early stages, but really throughout, did a lot of the most really important police work. There were leads. They were the very leads my friend had told me about the first day. At this point, I walk in. It's there in July. And I become very close to them. And um, there was a taxi driver everybody was looking for. Because the night of the murder, there was a taxi driver who was on the night shift. He picked up a couple of transsexuals who wanted to go to a gay bar down several blocks into the south of where the church is. He made a fateful wrong turn. He went down third instead of having gone down fifth. He had to let them off there. He continued on Ninth Avenue and made a left on a second and came up alongside the church. It was about a little after 10 at night on a Sunday night. And he said, this is a good place because it's so dark and deserted to pull over and get high. You're listening to author Francisco Goldman. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Stay tuned. Socalo Radio will be right back. time on day to day i am the darker brother My soul is a witness. in the movie the great debaters denzel washington tries to capture the 1930s south on screen and in the music you had your voice and you had your little string or your thing you're hitting it was a way of expressing yourself the story behind the soundtrack you had the blues next time on day to day weekday mornings at nine on 89.3 kpcc Lawrence Fauntleroy, Pat Morrison and Larry Mandel are headed back to college. Air Talk and Pat Morrison will be on several college campuses this fall, exploring challenges facing higher education in Southern California. The KPCC College Tour Bus will stop at Pasadena City College, UC Irvine, UC Riverside, UCLA, and others. More information online at kpcc.org. Every day you count on KPCC to bring you balanced, in-depth news and information. This service is possible only with your financial support. New legislation allows you to make a charitable contribution to KPCC in 2007 from your individual retirement account with potential tax savings. It's a great way to support the programming you rely on. To learn more about charitable IRA rollovers, call us at 626-585-7000. Thanks. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cathedral bells in Spain are mechanical and predictable. One man wants to change that by replacing machine-perfect peals with the imperfect sound of human bell ringers. When people make mistakes, they are creating. You must make all the ringing all the time different. One man's mission to bring the human touch back to Spain's church bells. That's coming up next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Socalo Radio. We now return to Francisco Goldman. And so he pulls over and he pulls out his, you know, like they do the same thing, that makes, starts making his spliff. And um, he's about to light it up and he looks up. At the end of the street, he sees a white Toyota Corolla parked on the curb and a man with no shirt. And he sees somebody who has his hands on the man with no shirt's shoulders as if he's detaining him. Another guy standing around. And then all of a sudden, another Toyota Corolla goes racing down the street, 
against the one-way traffic, and he sees it has no plates at all. And he looks up and he sees that that white Corolla has a four-digit license plate which is only giving to official vehicles. He goes, oh, is it undercover drug operation? And he gets really scared because he's got drugs. And, you know, he, he sort of like backs out of there to get out of there so that he'll see that car. So he'll remember that car if he ever sees it again. He memorizes the plate number. And he goes off. And the next morning, the witness, the vagrant, whose job it was not to touch any of the, uh, the soporific laced beer and sandwiches, is singing to the media and singing to the police that he saw a shirtless man come out. It's in all the papers... And he goes, I saw Bishop Haradi's murderer. And he doesn't know what to do. He's not religious, but he drives to his parish priest anyway, who is dressing for the funeral, and tells him what he saw and writes down the plate number. And he's terrified, this priest. He's a very flibberty-jitty, nervous priest. And he goes running to the church and gives the slip of paper to Minor Melgar, the Oda's lawyer, great, brilliant young lawyer. And they run a trace on it. And the plate, they find out, was once assigned to a military base in the eastern part of the country that, at least in the late 80s, had been under the command of Colonel Brian Lima Estrada, who, bizarrely, they'd already received some tips about. Somebody had phoned, say, look into the Limas, a woman, later turned out to be a relative of theirs. Everyone was looking for the taxi driver when I got there. They were driving this poor priest around, to every taxi stand in town. He was seeing what a tedious thing police work was. He was starting to get the death threats. He was totally nervous. He fled the country. Everyone was looking for the taxi driver. I was there. A taxi driver turns up dead in black plastic garbage bags thrown into a ravine. They go look at him in the morgue. The priest, he hasn't left yet. He's 70% sure it's the same taxi driver. They talk to the family the family says he had a record of arrests for drug use, and he'd been getting death threats. They thought, we lost him. The army got to him first. A week or so goes by, and the real taxi driver, who's still alive, shows up and um, goes back to his parish priest because he's having troubles with his wife. His wife wants to divorce him, and he's having troubles with his sister. He doesn't know who else to go talk to. And the priest goes, they're going crazy trying to find you. And he gets their pager number, and the untouchables brought in that witness. Later, in 2001, when this historic case goes to trial, the judges said, you know, that witness was really the foundation of the case. Without that witness, the subsequent case would have been very impossible to build. It's important to tell these stories. Later, after the verdicts, I think the most important part of this case happened, which was the campaign to discredit the verdicts for very specific reasons. And they would make up stories like... Um, the taxi driver was just a made-up witness. You know, the Oda made him up. But, you know, I was there, and I saw the day where they tried to abduct him, and he escaped, and he threw himself from a car, and his hands were bloody, and his, 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 his jeans were torn on his knee, and they were, that was bloody, and he was crying. You know, so nobody can tell me that that was a made-up witness. I lived through the whole thing with these guys. I'll just finish up here by saying, if it weren't for the work of the untouchables they would have been able to pin that whole murder on that priest. After that, that very disreputable prosecutor resigned in disgrace when the dog bite scenario fell apart. They got an honest prosecutor. He was about to issue uh, arrest orders against the military, and they made it clear that they were ready to abduct his children, and he fled the country. And then another prosecutor came in, and he stood there through the very end of the case of the first trial, as did the judges, enduring all manner of horrific death threats till he finally saw justice done. And in a strange way, you get these three officers, the first time Guatemalan military officers have ever been convicted of a human rights-related, state-sponsored, politically-motivated, extrajudicial execution, but many higher-up people to go after. And I think in a certain way, that's when the case really starts. From 2001 to 2007, the campaign against the verdicts and the way they fought back the untouchables the remarkably honest judges that turned up at every point of this case and the, the very brave prosecutors and witnesses. This is a case in which we saw 10 people murdered related to the case. Countless witnesses chased into exile, and the verdicts were finally upheld in April of 2007 for the last time in a very perilous appeals process. Now it's time for questions from the Sokolo audience for author Francisco Goldman. Hello, my name's Dolly, and uh, my question is, are you afraid of your own death threat going back to Guatemala? No, uh, it's, you know, the thing, 
that was most remarkable about these guys, they had a real ethic. Shakira, for example. I never had any idea that he was getting 12 death threats a day. Newlywed with his beautiful young wife. And they're getting 12 calls a day going, at midnight they're coming to kill you, at midnight they're coming to kill you. He would never say a word to me about that. I only learned that when I found it in a UN human rights report. So there was just this unbreakable code that you know, danger comes with the territory in a case like this. They're in more danger. Everyone's in danger. Uh, they more than me, but I have my enemies in this case by now. You know, and, um, but it's just, I learned from them that you just don't talk about it. <laughs> you know? we've, we've always heard that the, the Vatican has, has lots of resources um, at its disposal, and I was curious as to what resources that they could and, and have diverted towards, uh, um, towards strengthening the power of the church in, in such situations? I don't think much. The Guatemalan Office of Human Rights really struggles for funds. And the legal team, because the Church Office of Human you know, conducts exhumations, does mental health care for, for, for victims. Uh, their legal team, you know, they take out all kinds of cases. Uh, they keep disseminating the Remy Report like in these beautiful um, graphic novel, you know, some graphic, like graphic novel versions for school children and so forth. So the area that gets the least funding is the legal team and these investigators. I think the Vatican, the good thing they did is they didn't pressure the church to step back because they could have. But Pope John Paul II, like I say, he had a special feeling about Bishop Juan Herardi. So he supported the church. The church hierarchy supported the church's role as what they call creyante adhesivo, which is like a co-prosecutor. You join the prosecution. It's not a thing we have in this country. And allowed them to continue. But it was very controversial because the church was very divided, so divided that when Archbishop Pinados died and um, Archbishop Quesada was elevated, they held a vote about whether to close down the Oda or not. And they split 9-9, the bishops. And at that point, Quesada asked to see all their books because there had been just this terrible propaganda campaign against them. You know, they were laundering drug money and everything else. I mean, saw that everything was clean, that all the accusations were false. He had his own information. These guys hear confessions, you know. And, um, and he knew, and he came to the legal team and said, you guys are the heart and soul of the ODA, and there's no way we'll ever pull you from the Harari case. My name is Juana Webman, and the book is brilliant so far. I'm halfway through. If I could address a question to the untouchables and to Oda, I would say, why were there so many instances when you would direct witnesses to omit a little bit of information or to not say something that was an obvious fact? And the one that bothered me the most so far was the one involving Sergeant Major Obdulio Villanueva. I couldn't believe it, that they told him to omit the information about having seen someone who it turned out was there, who was released from prison to be there. Yeah, the reason is they thought he was wrong. They didn't believe him. They thought that uh, this man who worked within the MP, when he said what he'd seen that night, and he said among the murderers he'd seen Sergeant Major Abdullah Villanueva. And they went and looked into it and said, but Abdullah Villanueva was in prison. It can't be. He must be mistaken. And so um, they said, look, when you testify before you go into exile... Admit that, because they're going to think you're lying, and they're not going to believe you, you know, and it's going to discredit your testimony. And it was a mistake. You're right. I mean, they weren't flawless. And later, when the good prosecutor, Zasig, I don't know if you've gotten to that part yet, when he finds that witness and he finds out that that witness did, in fact, leave the prison, that witness was allowed to come and go from the prison almost at will. And then when he left at dawn and took part in the murder and then came back to the prison and found out that this earlier witness could have corroborated that, and they sheepishly confessed it. He was furious. You know, and that's one of the important things, because when the propaganda campaign, which was based completely on military intelligence, disseminated disinformation and very bad reporting, they tried to pretend this whole thing had been an ODA invention, and it had all come out of these fevered, evil imaginations. And they didn't even know that the prosecution and the ODA didn't even trust each other. And so far from working together, you had incidents like this where, where the ODA almost tripped up the case there. Hello, I'm Fred. Hi. Are there plans to translate your book into Spanish, and are you going to be involved in that? Yeah. 
you know, we really needed a translator who knew the case really well. So it's not like the person who would usually do my novels, and it's, but she's brilliant. She's a, uh, a Guatemalan journalist, the, one, the hero journalist in this story, Claudia Mendez. Um, and she's translating it. And she's coming up next week so that we can go through all my papers and get the exact transcripts of what people literally said and so forth. And she's working very hard, and she should be done by December. And so the book should be out in Spanish, hopefully six months later or so. But it really hit like a bomb in Guatemala. They ordered 700 copies in English at the book, the book Sofos, that bookstore and the other bookstore, I forget. And they sold out like in a weekend. You know, people wanted it to, to hear this version, having been fed so many other versions. Hello, my name is Jody Finkel. Thank you for covering the story. And I had a question about whether or not they're still in jail after the verdict, because in many cases, in the few cases where Latin American military officials were found guilty, they were always readily pardoned a few years after. That's what makes this case so extraordinary. I thought, as I was coming down the end of this book, I had the most sickening feeling that I was going to have to write, and then they all went free. You know, because we thought after, we never expected, you'll see when it goes to the 2005 appeal, we're so sure that it's going to be a corrupt court and everything looks perfectly set to overturn the verdicts. But the evidence is strong and miraculously it holds. And then in, in May of 2006, they do this crazy last-ditch amparo, which is not really an appeal, it's like a motion of some kind. It's a constitutional maneuver. It goes before the constitutional court. And it was such a weak argument that the defense lawyers didn't even show up to the hearing. They figured it was a lost cause. The months go by and no ruling. And we're all paranoid, always, in this case. And our anxiety is starting to grow. Nine months go by, no ruling. It's printed in the paper. It gets leaked. That of the five judges, four have already signed the verdict and upheld. So no matter what the fifth guy votes, who's the court president, it has to be upheld. But they need his signature, and he won't sign. I phone, and the judges are telling me, and they're telling my other report, off the record, that they're getting death threats every day, incredible pressure from people, the, the original general who worked for the man who was president when the murder took place. They're conducting this campaign of pressure and threat and intimidation, hoping to flip two of the judges. And it's part of the quiet heroism in this case. I can't even tell you these judges' names that they held. You know, officially they would say, we have a very heavy caseload. That was the on-the-record response. And finally, in April of 2007, that guy's term ran out. They put in a new judge, and within days it was signed, and the case was over once and for all, at that, the first stage of the case. It's, so they're still in jail, yeah. Well, one of them was killed in jail, decapitated in a prison riot. Hi, I'm Don. I'm wondering if you see analogies to present-day America. Of what? Oh, present-day America. Yeah, there are analogies that I think if you read it, you, you can't help but draw them. And I was very careful not to try and hit anyone over the head with it. But, you know, Guatemala is a post-intervention state. It's a state where proxy war was fought, Cold War. And you just see the promise is always that in exchange for all this bloodshed and violence and upheaval that, you know, democratic institutions will flourish. And instead you see in Guatemala all these years later, you know, a nearly failed state so drenched in corruption and violence that more people were violently killed in Guatemala last year than died in Afghanistan. And it makes you just, you know, you say to yourself, if you can't deliver what you promised when you're intervened in a speck of a country like Guatemala, you know, how are you going to do it in a much larger, even more violent place? So those kinds of things are there, without a doubt. Uh, Roland Palencia, yo soy de Guatemala, soy Chapin. My family tells me that basically the report was basically um, censored and is no longer in circulation. That the Remy report? Yeah. yeah. So I don't is it is it still readily available? Or is it... I think that it's hard to get the four-volume report, but maybe more for economic reasons. It's very expensive to print. As far as I understand, you can still get the one-volume abridged version. It's important to note here, and let this be a closing note, how important Remy turned out to be. It ended up being the cause of the military's worst fears being realized. Because just as Bishop Hardy had intended, the Raymond Report trailblazed paths up into those mountains for the UN guys to follow. So all those guiritos that nobody thought they would speak to went up there, and they followed those trails, 
and people were, the taboo against speaking out was broken. And the UN had much more money and many more people, and they did a 10-volume report where they found the army guilty of 93% of those 200,000 deaths and declared crimes against humanity and a genocide, which under international law undoes the amnesty. So Bishop Harardi's efforts really helped pave the way for that, which is why you see such a ferocious battle to preserve the institution of impunity and fight against the version, the verdicts in the Harardi case and make sure the case never goes any higher. Because if you go higher, you get to the real chiefs of military intelligence who are the real war criminals, who are also now totally tied in with the narcos. And it's not just political power they want to protect, but criminal power. That's what it's all about. Why don't they want to give up their hold on clandestine power? Because it's where the money is. It's not a question of left-right anymore. And that's what was really being threatened. And so the Bishop Hardy case really is a bridge between 80s Cold War violence, which is political, and 21st century violence. Same people, but now it's all about organized crime. You've been listening to author Francisco Goldman. This is Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socolo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For information, go to SocoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Bram, coming up practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob. Support for this public radio podcast comes from Acura, featuring the TL Type S with a 286-horsepower V6 and real-time traffic alerts. Learn more at Acura.com.